Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Governor Polis Proposes Plan to Build More Housing as Units for Low-Income Coloradans Disappear by Robert Davis. From Denverite, I'll be reading Dazzle's new location will feature artwork from local artists preserving the history of Colorado jazz by Isaac Vargas and Park Hill Golf Course's Future Reimagined by 6th Graders by Kyle Harris. From Westward, I'll be reading Colorado's long history of not holding gun manufacturers accountable may soon change, by Katie Cheshire, and Department of Safety Scraps Safe City Youth Summit in Wake of East High Shooting, by Chris Perez. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Governor Polis proposes plan to build more housing as units for low-income Coloradans disappear by Robert Davis. Governor Jared Polis unveiled a new plan that they say will help Colorado build more housing as the number of units that are affordable for Colorado's lowest income earners continues to disappear. Known as Create More Housing Now, the plan seeks to reduce regulatory burdens for home builders and incentivize local governments to build more multifamily housing. The plan already has support from local business organizations like the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce and nonprofits like the Denver Teachers Association and the Neighborhood Development Collaborative. By cutting red tape, legalizing more housing choices, strengthening property owners' rights, and planning for future growth, we can create more housing at a lower cost in Colorado communities near where people work or play, Polis said during a press conference on March 22nd. Colorado's previous attempts to spur more housing development have primarily revolved around increasing supply-side incentives like establishing an affordable housing tax credit and making state-owned land available for redevelopment. Colorado has also established a revolving loan fund to support the development of affordable housing and created multiple state grants for the same purpose. But Colorado has also increased regulations surrounding the demand side of affordable housing. For example, the state created the Colorado Middle Income Housing Authority in 2022, which requires developers to set aside affordable units in new developments. Lawmakers also established a fair housing unit in the Attorney General's office and extended additional fair housing protections for veterans and people enlisted in the military. Polis's plans seeks to marry these two approaches by creating a single framework that municipalities can manipulate to meet their housing needs. However, the plan would also preempt the efforts of some of the state's largest cities like Denver, Colorado Springs, and Aurora. These communities would be required to allow the construction of middle housing developments like multiplexes with up to six units and allow accessory dwelling units in all residential neighborhoods. We need to allow property owners the right to build different types of housing like ADUs, duplexes, and triplexes to increase our housing stock and make housing more affordable while also respecting the character of local communities, 
said Democrat Representative Stephen Woodrow of Denver. The new plan was unveiled at a time when housing affordability for Colorado's lowest income workers has hit an all-time low. New data from the National Low-Income Housing Coalition shows that the Metro Denver area has lost more than 16,000 units that were affordable for people earning 50% of the area median income or less since 2017. This means these units were affordable for individuals making a salary of roughly $41,000 per year, up to a family of six earning $68,000. Those tides may be getting rougher for some low-income earners, despite Colorado's softening housing market. The latest data from the Colorado Association of Realtors shows that the median sales price for a single-family home declined by 3.4% year-over-year in February to around $530,000. However, townhomes and condos saw their median price climb by roughly 4%, over the last 12 months, up to $415,000 in February. Every Coloradan deserves a safe and affordable place to live, and this proposal will allow us to create a smart, holistic approach that will expand the menu of housing options families and communities are able to choose from, said Senate Majority Leader Dominic Moreno, Democrat Commerce City. Working Coloradans are tired of being priced out where they live. This bill will cut red tape and expand our housing supply to make sure more Colorado families have a place to call home. These next two articles are from Denverite. Dazzle's new location will feature artwork from local artists preserving the history of Colorado jazz by Isaac Vargas. On both sides of Dazzle's new stage are windows stained with hues of red and blue, They alter the lighting inside with the motion of cars and people people traveling up and down Denver's 14th Street. You will feel the pulse of the city without it distracting from the music, said Kelly Dawkins, Dazzle's marketing director. Denver's flagship jazz club is moving from its current location in the Bauer Building, 1512 Curtis Street, into the city-owned Denver Performing Arts Complex, 1080 14th Street. The stage will feature dynamic LED lights that resemble Dazzle's newest logo. What you see are these circles on the logo. The circles are either a vinyl, the bell of a horn, or the circle of life. It represents a lot of different things, said owner and president of Dazzle, Donald Rosa. Due to building permit delays, the club doesn't have a set timeline for its opening. We thought we were opening in October or November, but at this point it's out of our control. As soon as we get the permit, we can open within two or three weeks. We're so close. We can't wait, Dawkins said. But Dazzle is making the most of delays and has been working with local artists and muralists to create an orchestra of visual art and sound. Murals are planned to honor famous musicians such as Ron Miles, Rene Marie, Charles Burrell, and Freddie Rodriguez Sr., Other installations will feature music note mosaics and a Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep made of reclaimed and repurposed wood from nearby demolition sites that will be an ode to the state's mammal and jazz horns created by local artist Brett Mazzarazzo. Famous Denver artist Thomas Evans, better known as Detour, shared a video of his mural honoring Miles, who is in the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. Earlier this year, Detour a Redline Contemporary Art Center board director introduced Rosa to resident artist Jasmine Holmes, artistically known as Jazz Holmes. 
Detour just happened to walk into my studio one day, said Holmes. He saw me working on some pieces, and we talked for an hour just about the mural scene. He asked about my experience, and he thought I would be a good fit for the mural scene. He had a partnership with Dazzle, mentioned me, and that's how I got into that project. Holmes's own experience with jazz made her just the right fit for the project. She played trumpet for her school's marching band when she was younger, something she felt helped her push her jazz boundaries. Brass instruments are a strictly male-dominated thing. Women are expected to sing. Men are expected to play all of the instruments. For me to be a trumpet player as a kid, I took a lot of pride in that, Holmes said. The bass, the beat, and the booming of brass instruments lived in Holmes's mind like colors. There were moments that I would close my eyes and have to feel what was happening around me. When I did that, I swear I could see these blips of color around me popping up with the music. Holmes first moved to Colorado in 2017 to attend graduate school at Colorado State University. She graduated in 2020 and struggled to find a jazz community during the pandemic, being stuck in Fort Collins at the time. I honestly didn't know about jazz in Denver. It feels like an honor to find jazz again. This is a dream come true type project for me, Holmes said. Holmes will create two different murals honoring women from Denver's jazz community. One of the women the murals will honor is Renee Marie, a mentor of Rosa. Rather than just hear the music, I want people to feel it. I always listen to jazz music in my studio because it helps me experience color. The more I listen to jazz music, I let the music itself determine the colors I use, Holmes said. Jazz is more than just music. It's a feeling. It's a culture. I want to help people feel more than what they are hearing. Rosa said he's been intentional about creating a space that will honor all contributors to the jazz scene. One in particular is an ode to Chicago jazz legend Freddie Rodriguez Sr. What I've learned operating jazz for so many years is that the Latin community has pushed music forward for the last 80 years. El Chapultepec first started out doing Latin music, but when the owner asked for a jazz musician, that person happened to be Freddie Rodriguez Sr., Rosa said. Rosa brought in Denver artist Shea Guerrero to create a, a mural honoring the legacy of Rodriguez. Her mural will be of Rodriguez Sr. playing the saxophone and will feature different levels of wood so as to pop out at the viewer. It'll be located in the piano lounge. I just hope it inspires other people and brings in a new audience. Maybe this will spark the interest of a young child who wants to be a saxophone player like Freddie. Using the past to inspire the present is how Guerrero's art career has taken shape. My dad passed away to suicide when I was six years old he came from Mexico and became a U.S. citizen. Growing up, I was not in touch with that side of me. I wasn't in touch with it, Guerrero said. I started diving deep and trying to discover more about the lost side of my culture as I got older. I started diving into Dio de los Muertos, and that became a huge theme in my artwork. Guerrero has embraced her Mexican background and eventually started her own company called Heart Dog Art Studio, which turns pets that have passed away into alebrijes. She spent much time researching the life of Rodriguez Sr. for the Dazzle mural. The thing that stood out to me the most about him was how he graced stages around Denver that were considered really rough neighborhoods. He was 89 years old, playing on stages and actively participating in his passion up until his last days. 
That's just such a beautiful example of someone living their true passion until the very end of their life. His first jazz gig was at the Peck, and his last jazz gig was at the Peck, Rosa said. The Piano Lounge will also feature a collection of vinyls highlighting Denver jazz musicians, and it will be used as a space for monthly Saturday Kids Matinee funded by the Denver Arts and Venues Denver Music Advancement Fund. It will be geared toward kids from 5 to 15. We'll bring in musicians who specialize in getting kids up, active, and dancing. We want kids in this space. We want them listening to music without interfering with the adult listening experience during the other times of the week, Dawkins said. One of Rosa's favorite rooms in the new space is the green room that connects to the sound booth looking out to the main stage. Best seat in the house, Rosa tells me. This is where I stand. You very rarely see me on stage. My favorite thing to do at Dazzle is to watch people watch the art. I'm just happy that we have brought in so much community to help build this place, Rosa said. Dazzle's vision for its main stage is focused on highlighting its performers. The imagery we are using throughout the whole facility are people who have inspired Dazzle for 26 years now. People like Charlie Burrell told us how to give a stage to the musician. Ron Miles, who passed away a year ago, told us what a musician needs from a stage. Both of those guys are huge mentors to Dazzle and myself personally. Park Hill Golf Course's Future Reimagined by 6th Graders by Kyle Harris On a chilly December day, 6th graders from Denver Green School Northfield stepped off of buses. They broke up into groups and began wandering around the now-defunct Park Hill Golf Course. The dry grass at the 155 acres of Northeast Park Hill crunched under their feet. This is the third batch of students that teacher and Northeast Park Hill resident Matt Stuprinowitz has brought to the former golf course as part of a literacy class unit on dystopian fiction and utopian solutions for the world's ills, a housing crisis, a climate crisis, and food insecurity. The students are asking a big question how to make this land benefit the surrounding communities. As they looked around, some said they could imagine a skate park, community gardens, splash pads, and playgrounds. Others wanted basketball and tennis courts. They're thrilled to see all the possibilities on this surprisingly large plot of land in a neighborhood where long-term residents have faced displacement and lacked a grocery store for decades. The students are eager to hear each other's ideas. Nobody's fighting. It's pure creativity. In contrast, adults have been clashing over the land's future since Westside Investment Partners bought the land in 2019, and, to a lesser extent, for decades before. Should it be a golf course, a mixed-use development with housing, retail, and a park, or perhaps something else? The issue comes to a head on April 4th when Denver will vote on whether a conservation easement that protects the land as a golf course and open space should be lifted and development allowed. The run-up to the election has been rough. Signs have been stolen. Slurs have been screamed. Lawsuits have been filed. Both sides of this fight have accused each other of deceit, corruption, and moral failure. But on that December day, those sixth graders set a more collegial example of how to discuss the empty, underused plot of land. Vivian Barney said she wants it to stay a park. What sorts of features would she like? Perhaps slides, and maybe a cemetery for the loved ones. 
Evan Wurst wants to see income-restricted housing built across the site. Other people need affordable housing versus some people just wanting to have a golf course or open space, he said. Well, me and my group were thinking that we could put like a big kind of like main plaza area as a centerpiece surrounded by small mom-and-pop restaurants and housing on the far edges, said Will Fryman. Some students were allergic to the idea of dense housing. They worried about the animals that lived on the land and hated to see trees cut down. Others thought the land was an eyesore, the trees and grass looked dead, and the area could be used much better to benefit the community. Almost everybody objected to fast food restaurants and other chains opening on the site. Other students loved the idea of locally owned businesses, farmers markets, and housing everyday Denverites can actually afford. And many students wanted to see public spaces where people could connect, shop, dine, and build community. After wandering the land, jotting down notes on their own ideas, and reading up on the history of the Park Hill Golf Course redevelopment, the students headed to the clubhouse to hear from Kenneth Ho, a principal with Westside and a developer on the project. Ho laid out his argument for developing the space. Golf is environmentally atrocious. Courses use 106 million gallons of water a year, 6,000 pounds of fertilizers, and 1,600 pounds of pesticides, he said. We don't think that that's a good use of the land because we know that, in the West, we're definitely experiencing a water crisis, Ho said. Westside plans to replace Kentucky bluegrass with a more drought-tolerant plant palette and add a pollinator district created by the Butterfly Pavilion. Because the former golf course is near the 40th and Colorado A-Line stop and a future Colorado Boulevard bus rapid transit line, building apartments and condos on the site makes environmental sense, Ho said. And Denver's in a housing crisis, and the 2,500 homes, at least 25% of which would be income-restricted, are much needed. And that's way more income-restricted housing than the developer would be required to build. In this plan, we're actually going to create new parks and open space, Ho said. That will include the fourth largest park in the city. The students were impressed with Ho's ideas, and many of them matched what they wanted though some wondered whether Westside would be able to pull it off. A few weeks later, developers with Westside and the Holleran Group visited the Denver Green School Northfield to hear the students' ideas. Students, some as individuals and others as pairs, stood in front of developers and began pitching their divisions for the site. In the Park Hill neighborhood, there is 155 acres of pretty much untouched land in which you guys can do pretty much anything you want, said Elliot Howell. In the way of housing, we thought that there should be a variety of townhomes, apartments, condos, family homes, but all affordable based upon how much you are earning in a year. That's bigger than Westside's current plan, which will include just 25% income-restricted housing. Vivian Howe's preferred housing type, townhouses. In this neighborhood, there is a problem with gentrification, and if we want to stop that, we need affordable and quality housing, she said. I also think we should have different colors and shapes to represent that everyone is different in their own special way. May Marshall's pitch to the developers included plenty of amenities for kids. Some things that we thought about adding would be a fountain for kids to play on sculptures, playgrounds, a garden, a splash pad for the summer, she said. 
There will be stoplights and fake streets where kids could bring a bike, a scooter, and more to the park and practice the rules of the road. Leah Proctor has a vision for better food security. Seeing as a food desert is a really big problem in this community, there will be three fresh produce stores, she said. Her ideal neighborhood would include both King Supers and Sprouts, where people could buy fresh and affordable produce and hygiene products. That also goes beyond what Westside has planned. The firm promises space for one grocery store, though there's no guarantee that one will actually exist. As they speak, Ho and his colleagues are excited about the possibilities the students see. I love how you guys think about this through the eyes of potential and what can happen, he said. Voters have until April 4th to decide whether Westside's vision is the one that should prevail. And the kids will be watching eagerly to see what the adults in the city decide and whether their ideas turn into a reality. The following articles are from Westward. Colorado's long history of not holding gun manufacturers accountable may soon change by Katie Cheshire. The quest for accountability and legal justice by families of those killed at the Table Mesa King Supers in Boulder two years ago has taken its next big step forward in Connecticut, while the shooter has yet to be declared competent for trial. Nathaniel Getz, executor of the estate of Suzanne Fountain, his mother, who was killed in the March 22, 2021 shooting, filed a lawsuit in, on March 10th against Sturm, Ruger & Company, which manufactured the gun used in the shooting. On March 27th, a second lawsuit was filed on behalf of the estates of Nevin Stanisic, Jody Waters, Dennis, Denny Stong, Lynn Murray, and Kevin Mahoney, who were also killed that day with the same legal premise. The lawsuits have been entered in Connecticut because that's where Ruger is headquartered. But even if its headquarters were in Colorado, restrictive state laws that protect the gun industry would have made it impossible to conduct the civil suit in the Centennial State. Thanks to a bill that has passed both chambers of the Colorado legislature, that could soon change. In 2000, as a reaction to a background check measure implemented after the Columbine shootings, the then Republican-controlled state legislature passed a law giving the gun industry immunity from civil lawsuits related to its role in mass shootings, while also prohibiting firearms manufacturers, importers, and dealers from being held liable as third parties or found responsible for damages related to physical and emotional injuries, and even death, from firearms. That law also instructed courts to require those who brought forth any civil lawsuits to pay the attorney fees of the gun industry after each case was inevitably dismissed. It's been on the books for 23 years, says State Senator Sonia Jaquez-Lewis, who rallied at the Capitol back then to encourage gun control. This year, she's the co-sponsor, along with Senator Chris Colker and Representatives Javier Mabry and Jennifer Parenti, of the bill dubbed the Jesse Redfield Gwaii Act for Gun Violence Victims Access to Justice and Firearms Industry Accountability. The act will allow civil lawsuits to move forward. It has passed both chambers of the legislature and is waiting for a final vote in the Senate to approve the renaming of the act to honor Redfield Gwaii, who was killed in the 2013 Aurora Theater shooting. After that, it'll head to Governor Jared Polis's desk for a signature. Until then, 
Families must seek other venues for accountability and legal justice, which is exactly what the Boulder shooting families did in Connecticut. Getz's lawsuit alleges that Ruger designed the AR-556 pistol used in the March 22, 2021 shooting specifically to skirt laws regulating rifles. The AR-556 pistol variant featured the same rail system as other AR-15 style rifles while having an altered barrel and stock to evade federal classification as a rifle, the lawsuit says. Ruger designed the AR-556 such that it would utilize the same ammunition and magazines as the AR-15s. As a result of Ruger's design choice, the AR-556 is more deadly than other pistols on the market. The lawsuit also accuses Ruger of selling the AR-556 with stabilizing braces that essentially allowed the weapon to be converted to a rifle while still preserving its classification as a pistol for regulatory purposes. These actions add up to a violation of the Connecticut Unfair Trade Practices Act, first adopted in 1973, says Andrew Garza of the Connecticut trial firm, which is handling the case along with Denver firm Harding & Associates. By marketing what was in essence a short-barreled rifle as a pistol, Garza said Ruger allowed the Boulder shooter to purchase a weapon online that would have otherwise been illegal to purchase in Colorado. In the National Firearms Act, rifles are more heavily regulated than pistols. In the wake of a lot of these shootings, there was increased regulation on assault rifles and the AR-15 style weapon, Garza said. They're notoriously used and selected by shooters because they deliver maximum damage quickly. Ruger took advantage of gray areas in federal law to avoid the increased regulation, according to the suit. They chopped the barrel down a little bit, Garza explains. They put on something called a pistol brace, which is just like a stock, functionally, and lo and behold, you have a pistol, but it fires like a rifle. That deception shouldn't be allowed under CUTPA, Garza said. That's key because the Federal Protecting Lawful Commerce in Arms Act specifies that for a person to sue gun manufacturers, the alleged conduct must fit under a specific set of exceptions, including a predicate exception allowing civil lawsuits against members of the gun industry should they violate a state or federal trade regulation law. Ruger's marketing promoted its AR-556s for mass casualty assaults, the lawsuit says. Ruger's marketing was unethical. Ruger's marketing was immoral. Ruger's marketing was unscrupulous. Ruger's marketing was oppressive. Ruger's marketing was reckless. According to CUTPA, marketing that fits those definitions is specifically prohibited. Garza also points to the 2019 Sato v. Bushmaster Firearms International case litigated in Connecticut as a reason the lawsuit can go through in the state. In that case, the court held that the Sandy Hook families were correct that Bushmaster's marketing played a role in the deaths of their children. At least in Connecticut, there is well-established precedent from only a few years ago that says we can use this state statute to sue gun manufacturers, Garza says. If they use a weapon made by a different manufacturer who was in a different state, or the manufacturer who made the weapon was headquartered in a different state, you may not have a remedy. Whether that's fair, I have strong opinions on. But, fortunately for our clients, 
the case could be brought here. Colorado, Arkansas, and Indiana are the only states that have laws in place giving the gun industry extra immunity from civil lawsuits. The first part of the Jesse Redfield Gwaii Act would repeal that language. The rest of the bill would place language in state statutes specifying that the firearms industry is held to the same legal standards as other businesses and affirming that all of Colorado's other statutes, such as the Colorado Consumer Protection Act and the Colorado Antitrust Act of 1992, apply to the gun industry as well. The majority of firearms industry is probably following the rules, Jaquez Lewis says. It's making sure that these bad ones are accountable. We want them to be as accountable as any other business. Jessica Guay's parents, Sandy and Lonnie Phillips, tried to sue Lucky Gunner, the online dealer that sold ammunition to the Aurora Theater shooter, for negligence in Colorado and wound up going bankrupt. Once we started finding out information about our case, we were kind of stunned how easy it was for the killer to get his hands on not only weapons, but tactical gear and ammunition, Sandy Phillips says. We were wondering where the checks and balances were, because there weren't any. The act, named after their daughter, which would prevent other families from facing the same fate, is part of a package of four bills that the new state Gun Violence Prevention Caucus has put forth. Along with Jaquez Lewis and Colker's bill, the caucus pushed legislation instituting a three-day waiting period between purchase of a firearm and delivery, expanding who is allowed to apply for extreme risk protection orders, and raising the minimum age to purchase a firearm from 18 to 21. Each bill has passed both chambers, but they're currently waiting on concurrence from each of their respective chambers of origin on amendments before heading to polis. Jaquez Lewis says Polis can help meet the call of those impacted by gun violence by signing all four bills when they reach his desk. The Jesse Redfield Gwaii Act will serve as the people's enforcement and mechanism for the other three bills, the sponsors say. We have certain places in the state who really don't want to enforce red flag laws, Colker notes. By doing civil action here, we can go after the bad actors, the dealers, the manufacturers who are violating the law that we have if those laws aren't being enforced. The legislative package is also responsive to the pleas of advocates, particularly young people who have been flooding the Capitol asking for a change after violence at East High School reached a peak with two shootings over the past two months. Unfortunately, since 1999, there's been different groups of young people going through the stages in life and finding that voice because of these awful events, Colker says. This package of bills we put together, this is just adding to our toolkit to help reduce gun violence. The families who have brought lawsuits against Ruger have the same aim, Garza says. They feel very passionately that the laws need to be better, he concludes. The primary concern is they want something to come from the death of their loved one, for change to happen. We have to do more as a society to protect our communities. Anything that we can do to protect our kids, I think we have an obligation to do, morally and otherwise. Department of Safety Scraps Safe City Youth Summit in Wake of East High Shooting by Chris Perez With fears mounting over gun violence and school safety, the Denver Department of Safety decided to postpone its longest-running public forum on the subject, the 27th Annual Safe City Youth Summit, which was postponed indefinitely on March 23rd, 
just one day before the event was scheduled to take place and the day after the shooting at East High School. The youth leadership team is extremely upset at this cancellation, the department acknowledged in a March 23rd Facebook post. Denver officials say the decision was made after DPS announced that classes would be canceled on March 24th for a student mental health day. The Safe City Youth Summit was scheduled to take place from 9 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. that day, with kids brought in from around the metro area with chaperones and or parents. With school canceled, the logistics became impossible. According to safety spokesperson Kelly Jacobs, the organizers have no idea when or where the summit will take place now. There's so much up in the air as we determine what to do moving forward, Jacobs explains. We're scrambling to find a place to fit almost 500 people. While much is still being decided, the city does know that Denver's East High shooting and the reintroduction of SROs in the high schools will be one of the biggest talking points at the summit, which was created to combat conditions that had led to Denver's so-called summer of violence in 1993. It's definitely something that will be talked about, Jacobs says, noting that the event's agenda is driven by the Public Safety Youth Leadership Team. The department will send out information in the coming weeks regarding a new date and location for the event. As the Department of Public Safety notes in its description, the Youth Summit provides teens the opportunity to discuss major issues facing them, including gun violence, and how we as a city and community can better keep them safe and supported while at school and around Denver. So wouldn't now have been a great time to hold such an event? Beth Yohei Executive Director of the Conflict Center, a community nonprofit dedicated to providing practical skills and training to address violence and everyday conflict, certainly thinks so. We believe in the voices of youth, Yohei says. Especially now, it's really important to give youth opportunities to engage with the school district and the city to talk about their needs. And something like a youth summit is really important, and especially important right now. On the department's website, the city's Public Safety Youth Leadership Team, which has planned and coordinated the summit for the past 26 years, describes its main purpose as being anchored in constructive conversations about the current state of youth safety and violence. The summit's mission is to create a safe forum for youth to discuss, address, and implement an ongoing youth partnership within the community, it says. But with the summit's postponement, Students and local youth who could use this discussion right now have nowhere to go, at least for the time being. We urge the city to create opportunities sooner rather than later to center student and community voices, Yohei says, to talk about long-term solutions to violence in ways that prioritize actual data about what things do and don't work. The department understands the need for events like the Safe City Youth Summit during times like these, says one safety official, noting that now is the time to be engaging in these difficult conversations. But once DPS canceled school in favor of a mental health day, the summit had to be put off. Given that the summit is held on a school day, the event was postponed, not canceled, due to DPS making last Friday a mental health day for students, Jacob says. Executive Director Saldate, Chief Thomas, Mayor Hancock, and many others from the city have been in ongoing dialogue with students to discuss these matters directly and will continue to do so moving forward. Jacobs adds that the department and its youth leadership team 
are working diligently to find a new date and location for the summit, which includes complex logistics like finding a new space that can accommodate hundreds of students and breakout rooms, buses, chaperones, vendors, and community parent partners, and DPS's schedule. Yohei and the Conflict Center are hoping the event, which was canceled in 2020 and 2021 because of the pandemic, can be held as soon as possible. We recognize the need for people to share their voices, and we recognize that there needs to be an ongoing conversation and action plan, she says. The East High shooting has led to widespread conversations about gun violence and school safety around Denver over the past week, and school resource officers, which the DPS board banned in June of 2020, will be reintroduced next week. According to Department of Safety officials, the shooting has been weighing heavily on the minds of people involved with the Safe City Youth Summit. The Department of Safety is committed to continuing to listen and work alongside our youth and our community to ensure the safety of our students, Jacobs notes. In addition to our civilian public safety youth program staff already working with students, the decision to bring officers back to some DPS schools for the remainder of the school year offers a great opportunity for partnership. Addressing youth violence and keeping our students safe continues to be among the department's top priorities and always will be. Baseball's back. Five things in Denver more competitive than the Rockies on opening day by Katie Cheshire. Rockies owner Dick Monfort made a splash in January when he said he thought the team can play 500 ball in 2023. Unfortunately, those might be the only waves the team makes this season. Though an even record may not seem like much, it could be a lofty goal for a team that won only 68 of 162 games last year, good for a mile-high 420 winning percentage. Still, it wasn't terribly inspiring to fans to hear that their hometown team had its sights set on being average. Much like the Denver mayoral race, the mere existence of players entering the field doesn't make something competitive. At least the Rockies have one rising star people can rally behind in shortstop Esquivel Tovar, who is set to start the season on the big league roster. Polls on the mayor's race, meanwhile, have yet to show any one star that people are truly excited about. But unlike the case with either the Rockies or city politicians, there are plenty of competitive scenes in the Mile High City for those who aren't inspired by the Montfort strategy of acceptance acceptable mediocrity, including the city's National Basketball Association and National Hockey League teams, the Nuggets and Avalanche. Here are five ways Denver can get its competitive fix, since the Rockies seem poised to strike out on that front before the team even plays its opening day game in San Diego on March 30th against the Padres. The line to get into Casa Bonita. Anticipation for the West Colfax Pink Palace's May reopening now under the ownership of South Park creators Trey Parker and Matt Stone, is building rapidly. Nearly 1,500 people have announced that they plan to attend a Facebook event called the Great Wait in Line event to eat the first night at Casa Bonita opening night. Jesse Vogel, a Denver citizen, started the Facebook page amid his own excitement about Casa Bonita's imminent revival and is still working out the details of the event. It might include a ticketed numbering system to get in line for a 24-hour party the day before the restaurant and eater entertainment experience, which closed during the pandemic, opens once more. 
The hype for the wait to get into Casa Bonita just might surpass the excitement for admission to Coors Field. The ultimate frisbee scene. Although the traditional big four sports of baseball, basketball, football, and hockey tend to dominate the news cycle, there are plenty of other incredible athletes from Colorado, including the state's ultimate frisbee aficionados. A Colorado women's and men's team both took home the 2022 USA Ultimate National Championships this year in their respective divisions. It was the first championship for the women's team, dubbed Molly Brown, since it formed in 2010. The Colorado Alpenglow, a women's professional ultimate team, just became the eighth team in the Western Ultimate League, with its season starting in March. The Colorado Summit, which formed in 2022 and won the Western Division in the American Ultimate Disc League, is also a high-performing team, and its season will kick off in May. By that time, the Rockies might already have become irrelevant in their division. The city's pickleball players. There are few scenes as competitive as the race to find a pickleball court in Metro Denver right now. Passionate picklers have been pestering the city for more courts and even found themselves in trouble for vigilante improvements they made to the popular Congress Park courts. Pickleball fever has reached such a peak that the city of Centennial just instituted a six-month moratorium on new courts within 500 feet of homes because of noise complaints. Entrepreneurs are also getting into the scene, with Robert Thompson, owner of Angevine & Company, which pioneered the punch bowl social entertainment concept, planning to open a similar business for pickleball. Camp Pickle, as it's dubbed, will offer a scratch kitchen in about 15 courts, with locations planned in Centennial and Globeville. As people compete to get in on the pickled delights, the Rockies will be competing for the attention of fans more interested in scouting pickle shots than the Major League Baseball prospects. The Denver Zoo's Baby Sloth Naming Contest In February, Westward got an inside look at the Denver Zoo's cutest new addition, a baby sloth. Now, the facility is asking patrons what the growing boy should be named, with a naming contest in which fans can pledge $5 to pick from three options, Rain, Wicket, and Cappuccino. Voting ends March 31st, and sloth enthusiasts have voiced their thoughts under several Denver Zoo tweets about the event this week. There's probably more love for this little cutie than there is for the oft-bemoaned Rockies mascot, Dinger. The Line to Get E-Bike Vouchers On Earth Day in 2022, the City of Denver kicked off its e-bike rebate program, which helps city residents purchase electric bikes to get around in the name of sustainability. The Denver Office of Climate Action, Sustainability, and Resiliency quickly realized that the demand for e-wheels was much higher than anticipated and has since moved to a system of rolling applications every few months. When the program returned in July of 2022, interest was still so strong that many users vying for a voucher crashed the CASR email verification system. Since then, the city department has made the process work, but the rebates are still the hottest commodity in town. After a new batch of rebates became available starting at 11 a.m. on March 28th, CASR tweeted that all of them were claimed within nine minutes. Coors Field has a great bike parking area for those who want to travel to the stadium on two wheels. 
Now it's up to the team to show why it's worth it to go to a game. No thanks to its owner. KUVO's Nikki Swarn on Exit of Controversial Exec and Station's Future by Michael Roberts. KUVO, the public radio station at 89.3 FM specializing in jazz, has had plenty of ups and downs since its 1985 debut, but last year may have been its most tumultuous. Many listeners were upset and confused by the departure of four longtime hosts, Rodney Franks, Susan Gatchett, Matthew Goldwasser, and Janine Santana, and worried that the music mix at The Signal, known for championing the work of jazz giants, had been watered down in a revenue-driven quest for a younger audience. The person most associated with these changes was Max Ramirez, who was hired as KUVO's program director in February of 2022. But his tenure proved to be brief. On March 24th, General Manager Nikki Swarn announced in a letter addressed to friends and supporters that Ramirez would be leaving the station. After April 4th, Max plans to relocate out of state, but will continue working remotely with KUVO as a consultant until May 15th, she wrote, adding that she would act as interim program director as we review plans for this position. Swarn insists that Ramirez's exit didn't come as a result of the controversy he'd stirred. Sometimes things just don't work out, she says. When we were putting together the station, Max wanted some things and we wanted some things. And being able to meet in the middle can sometimes be a challenge. But he's a great programmer with a lot of great opportunities ahead of him. Meanwhile, the responsibility for moving KUVO into the future rests heavily on Swarn, whose titles just keep multiplying. When she was named KUVO's general manager last November, she was already serving in the same role at The Drop, a KUVO spinoff specializing in hip-hop and urban alternative music that's won multiple Best of Denver awards, and she continues to do so. Taking on the duties of interim program director at KUVO2 guarantees her longer days, even as it will make her the target for criticism from listeners who either liked or loathed the sonic blend Ramirez instituted. But if Swarn is feeling overwhelmed, she's hiding her anxiety very well. Right now, things are really amazing, she says. It's like a dream come true. Originally from Ann Arbor, Michigan, Swarn attended grade school and high school in Denver and became a dedicated listener of KDKO, an urban music outlet overseen by James Dr. Daddio Walker, who was a role model and inspiration. He was the first African-American to be general manager of a Denver radio station, and I am the first African-American woman, she points out. I never put my feet in the shoes of people like him, but I put my shoes next to them, and he was a big influence on me. My job is to hold the door open just a little wider, as it was held open for me. It's empowering to know there is an opportunity for my voice to be heard at the table and that I can invite people to come into an industry that, that, that's not necessarily been friendly to people of color, especially women of color. Her love of radio also made her a fan of KUVO, and she fondly recalls interviewing station co-founder Florence Hernandez-Ramos while she was a student at the University of Colorado Denver. Hernandez-Ramos is back at the station as a strategy and team-building consultant and emeritus member of the Rocky Mountain Public Media Board of Directors. Swarn wasn't hired when she first applied for a job at the station. It wasn't my season yet, 
she says. But in 2019, after more than two decades of work in Denver area radio stations, such as KHIH, KS107.5, KYGO, ESPN, and Alice 105.9, she was invited into the KUVO fold to, to launch the drop. Three years later, Swarn took the helm at KUVO, and in the four months or so since she's been in charge, she's listened closely to the concerns expressed by listeners. The email we sent out about the change that was happening with Max was my personal email address, and I responded to all the emails I received, she stresses. A lot of feedback centered on how much they love KUVO and how much it's a part of their daily experience. But they ran the gamut from saying, hey, is there going to be an opportunity for this and that to happen? Or are you going to bring folks back? Asked about the possibility of Frank's, Gatchet, Goldwasser, and Santana returning to KUVO, Sworn responds, I don't have a crystal ball, so it's hard for me to say what's going to happen with talent. But we've got an amazing group of folks, and I'm so excited to see their fresh and new vision. They are invigorated and want to try new things. The same is true for several of the departed hosts. Although Goldwasser declined comment, Franks is currently working at KPEO, an internet radio station, where he's playing music rooted in jazz from 3 to 6 p.m. weekday afternoons. The service has thousands of listeners nationally and internationally, but only a handful in Denver, and he'd love to grow the number locally. The hiring of Sworn as KUVO's general manager strikes him as a good move. I respect Nikki's abilities and what she brings to the table, Frank emph- Franks emphasizes. As for Ramirez's departure, he says, hopefully it will let the current management make decisions unencumbered by the previous management, questionable decisions made prior to their ascendance to the spot. Santana and Gatchet have teamed up to create TAVN, an online station they've dubbed the Arts Validation Network. The project is currently live, and Santana reveals that fundraising is underway for an app to make their work more easily accessible. As for Ramirez, she says, if he's gone, he's gone, and I'm not surprised. But even though I'm still infuriated by what they did to all of us, I'm also not going to go back there and keep poking an open wound. It's like if you break up with an abusive spouse. The best thing to do is not to look backwards. Likewise, Swarn wants to move KUVO ahead. This is a beautiful place to work, and I'm very blessed to have the opportunity, she says. It's the honor of my life to serve this public media radio station and this organization in the way I do, and I don't take it lightly. I'm invigorated by the possibilities and have so much respect for the history of jazz in this beautiful state of Colorado. I can't even explain the energy and the vigor I get from it. I'm so happy that this is my journey. Swallow Hill Music introduces Free Vinyl Listening Club, Sips and Spins by Justin Criado. Swallow Hill Music has always been more than a live music venue to the people of Denver. Since officially forming in 1979, the nonprofit has welcomed and nurtured countless creatives by providing a steady stream of music classes and concerts through the years, as well as simply offering a place to mingle among like-minded peers. Community marketing manager Barry Osborne knows this, which is why he's excited about some new programming on tap for 2023 particularly the Sips and Spins Record Club. The group, which is open to the public and free of charge, 
will meet for the first time on Thursday, March 30th from 7 to 9 p.m. in Swallow Hills Quinlan Cafe. Osborne, a banjo player himself, will lead the initial discussion and listening party. This is the beginning of some new programming. We're still in the early stages of it, but in the early winter, we reconfigured the space in our cafe to be amenable to hanging out, he says. We're trying to get back to this idea that we can be a meeting place. We can be a place where people can just hang out before or after a class. Swallow Hill has been in its current location, a former church nestled near the corner of East Yale Avenue and Broadway, since 1998. It's a charmingly funky space, as Osborne puts it, which makes it conducive to more outreach activities outside of concerts. We know people like to hang out here, so we want to try to give them opportunities to come to the cafe for events like this. It doesn't have to be just be for a class or a concert, he explains. The idea for the Sips and Spins Club came about during casual conversations among co-workers, including Swallow Hill concert director Bruce Trujillo, who loved the idea, Osborne notes. I'm excited. We're able to grow our relationship with music in a way that we haven't before. A record club is intimate, not only for the person choosing the music, but for those who come to listen, he says. Hosting it in our Quinlan Cafe feels like we're inviting friends over to share our favorite music. Osborne adds that the new club is partly an homage to past programming. What I really like about it is that Swallow Hill started in 1979 as an outgrowth of the Denver Folklore Center. And if you look back at programming at Swallow Hill in the 80s and 90s, we used to have a library, movie nights, different clubs, he explains. While we've always done concerts and classes, and that's still a majority of what we do, we've also wanted to be a bit more of a meeting and community space. I think there's a desire to do a little bit more programming in that vein, and that's what the Sips and Spins Record Club grew out of. It's new, but it's also kind of calling back to things that are in Swallow Hill's DNA. Plus, gathering with friends and listening to albums is something that Osborne fondly remembers doing regularly during his younger school days. Some of my happiest times in high school or college were afternoons where you're just hanging with friends playing music. I still like to do that now. We thought maybe we could bring some of that feel and vibe into the cafe at Swallow Hill. He and a group of his buddies also once started a record and whiskey club, during which someone would pick an album to play and talk over, including which spirit paired best with the featured release. Last year, Osborne hosted a listening party among friends when the New Bjork album, Fasora, came out. Simply put, music has always had the power to bring people together. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.